This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. Whoever then has failed to satisfy the law and is in captivity in sin and death, let him turn from the law to the gospel. Let him believe the preaching of Christ, that he is truly the Lamb of God. Every week we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. This week's episode is coming to you from Martin Luther. It was preached in 1532 on New Year's Day. This episode of Revive Thoughts is a little bit different. We are covering Martin Luther and we have an expert, someone who knows a whole lot about Martin Luther, who is going, we're going to do a short interview with him, Brian Wolfmuller, and we're very excited. And as soon as we start talking, you hear all his answers and all the wisdom he has to give on Martin Luther, you're going to love this interview. Uh, But first, we wanted to give you just a tiny bit of information about the sermon that you're going to hear, and then we'll, we'll jump in and plug into the interview. And do stay tuned. Uh, to the very end of the episode, we asked him and we have an opportunity to give you a free book and we will tell you about that free book. It's the book that he wrote and they take our life, Martin Luther's Theology of the Martyrdom. And we will tell you how to get that at the end of this episode. So we have Brian Wolfmuller here. Brian, can you tell our audience a little bit of your background and and uh, and and what your specific interest in Martin Luther is? How did How did you come to be interested in him? I'm a Lutheran pastor, so I'm required to. That's the first thing. But I'm pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. So I have those two congregations. But I found in my own study of theology that Martin Luther has a a brilliance, both not only with rhetoric, but also with clarity, with bringing the scriptures to bear. It's really wonderful. And so he's a hero of mine, especially as I, I read how he preached and taught pastorally and how he argued always from the scripture with Christ at the center. It's really wonderful for me. So I grew up in the liberal Lutheran church, kind of wandered in my adolescence away from the Lutheran church, thought that it had nothing to benefit me, and came back kind of on a surprising track, back not only to the Lutheran church, but also then to be a pastor in the Lutheran church. So, so God be praised, and in my study of the scriptures, I'm always letting Luther sort of preach over my shoulder, to see, to try, or maybe I'm trying to pe- peek over his shoulder to see what he's seeing in the scripture, and it's always a delight, always. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I've read some Martin Luther myself where I he, he, I read The Bondage of the Will, and I'd love to say I've read more of his, but just other than sermons and stuff, I haven't been able to read more of it. But there, he's such a forceful guy, but yet you don't come away from it feeling, I don't know, attacked or pushed or anything like that. You just kind of come away from it going like, wow, that's a really good truth that I'm I'm glad I read that. I, I That's the funny thing is like his book is, you know, uh, it's older. It's 500 years ago. You wouldn't think it applies to you. He spends like two thirds of it arguing with Erasmus. I have no idea what Erasmus said before that. But at the same time, every time I just kind of put the page down and thought, wow, that's no, that's a really good point he has. Yeah. Um, there's a way, you know, John the Baptist says, I must decrease and he must increase. And I think this is what Luther does when, when he's doing his Luther thing. He is decreasing and Christ is increasing. And so there's a refreshing, um, there's, it, maybe that's it, there's a freshness to his writing because it refreshes us with the grace of God in Christ. 
That is really well said. That's I. That's exactly how. I, and that's. It's not just Luther. There's a lot of these guys who do that. But that definitely, when you read Luther, there's something that to what you're saying right there. Um. So you know, when we think back about the Reformation, and you know, here in Revive Thoughts, we've had a lot of. Uh, experience and, and, and we, we've the more we've dug into them, the more that we see all these great men in history. And there's names that really stick out. You know, you're John Calvin, Luther, of course. Why do you think that those certain people of that era have have become so well known and have stuck out so much? Well, there's a lot of things that converged when um, when when Luther sort of rose to prominence in the theological conversation of the Middle Ages. But Luther himself tells the story of how the gospel got a hold of him. It's a beautiful story. Uh, it's sometimes called the Tower Story. And he says, I was trying to teach Romans, and I couldn't get past the word, the righteousness of God, there in Romans 1, where I'm not mm-hmm. ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And Luther says, I was stuck on that word, the righteousness of God, because I was taught in seminary that the righteousness of God is the righteousness that God has and that he demands of us in the Ten Commandments. And Luther understood it like this, that God's commandments demand this much of us, and then the gospel comes along and demands even more. So that the commandments say, don't commit adultery. The gospel says, as Luther understood it, don't look with lust. The commandments say, don't murder. The gospel says, don't be angry. So that Luther understood the gospel as an intensification of the law, and it was pressing him down. He just couldn't get past it. And he said, this is wild to read. He writes about it in an introduction to a publication of his Latin works later, just as he's about to die late in life. And he says, I hated that word, the righteousness of God, and I hated the Lord who demanded such righteousness from me. And I was railing, if not outwardly, at least inwardly, and blaspheming and pressing against this thing. And so you you get this picture of Luther wrestling with the scriptures, wrestling with God, trying to understand the text, thinking that God is his enemy. And then he says, I paid attention to the context. He, He noticed one word in the verse, and that was the word faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And Luther knew that faith is what trusts a promise. We keep a commandment by obeying it. We keep a promise by believing it. So Luther says, now wait, wait a minute. If the righteousness of the gospel is the righteousness of faith, then that means that this is not a righteousness that's demanded of me, but rather it's a righteousness that's promised to me or that's given to me. And all of a sudden, the whole of Scripture just kind of flies open. He says, it's like heaven itself was opened and the, and it was radiating this light and I raced through the scriptures and I saw that this is the true, the true gospel is that God gives us his righteousness, gives us his perfection, gives us his holiness in the forgiveness of all of our sins. That's a doctrine of justification. And, and once that gets a hold of someone, I mean, once that doctrine gets a hold of someone's ears and hearts and lips and pen, then you cannot stop them. I mean, you, you will preach that until someone buries you. You're going to speak hmm. that until someone knocks your teeth out. And that's how it was with Luther. I mean, the gospel hmm. got a hold of him, and he just couldn't, he couldn't be threatened. He couldn't be silenced. He couldn't be put down because he knew that God loved him in Christ, that he was forgiven and justified and perfect. It's really wonderful. 
No, I, I completely agree. It's funny you said that because you were talking about how you kind of earlier said the progression of, you know, it's not just that you can't have adultery, you can't even lust in your heart. There's, in the Sermon on the Mount, that same area, there's that part where he says, even if you call someone you fool, you're you're destined for fire, basically. And the gospel really does heighten that message. And, and you're right that Luther really just, once he got it, once he was no longer working for it, which I think it must have been so hard and that obviously God was working for him to, in that era of just the Catholic indulgences and all that stuff, to go from from where he was, where he's got to work and earn it and, you know, make God happy to this guy who believes, no, no, the righteousness of God is coming into me. I could see how that just transforms these men and makes them unstoppable because they probably feel just so free from the heavy burdens they were carrying. Uh, so it's interesting. And this actually kind of ties in really well, though, with what my next question was going to be. I didn't expect that, but you, uh, it, what, what caught my eye, what, what made me want to have you on the show is you recently wrote a book on Luther, and if I'm correct, it's, it has his thoughts on martyrdom and all this, which really, you know, kind of fits well with this scene that once you really know the gospel, you will, you know, give your life for that. Um, what is something that you really want from this idea of Luther and martyrdom and all this? What is something you really wish people could, if they could take away one thing, what is something that that one thing you really want them to take away? Sure. Well, you know, Lu- it, martyrdom was asleep, at least in Europe, for about a thousand years. So the great Roman persecutions ended around the year 300, but then they awoke in the Middle Ages, and especially during the Reformation, there was all these martyrs that were happening uh, in the church. It was Christians who were confessing Christ and being and being put to death by the Catholic Church, and Luther himself expected to be a martyr. And yet, uh, as he preached and taught about the martyrs, they were an important picture of what the Christian life was. There's one line in Luther where he says that, talking about the current martyrs, the people who are losing their life for the confession of the gospel, he says, in our day, the true pattern of the Christian life has reemerged. Hmm. Now, can you imagine that? That to be a martyr is what Luther considers to be a Christian. That's the true pattern of the Christian life. And if we manage to get to the end of our life without being martyred for our faith, then that's an exception to the rule. The rule is we take up our cross and follow Jesus. That the cross, suffering in the name of Jesus, is the mark of the Christian life. And this is so important for us. I mean, if there's one thing to pull out of this is that there's been a lie in the modern church that being a Christian makes your life better. Now, in a spiritual way or in a really kind of biblical truth way, that's true, but not in the way we normally think about it. We think, let's just try out Jesus and think, see if things improve. See if I get better parking spots and fewer red lights <laughs> and my digestion improves or whatever. You know, it's this kind of health and wealth kind of nonsense, which is antithetical to the Scripture because the Scripture says that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied, and Luther knew it. He knew that the real treasure was not a better life, but rather Christ himself in this life and in death to life eternal. And insofar as Luther can preach that to us today, I think it's good because the days are coming, I think, quickly. They're already here in most of the world where there's going to be a burden for confessing the name of Jesus. And we need to fortify ourselves for that. And the Christian needs to recover the, the heroes of the faith Mm-hmm. that have given us that courage before. <laughs> Which, I mean, and I don't want to, you know, it's our show, but that's, man, we do all these pastors and sermons from the past, right. and we look at their backstories every time, and it is, it is the like you said, the exception not to the rule to the pastor who didn't suffer in some way right. to see God's name glorified. 
Brian, I uh, I always love it when we get to speak to an expert, someone that really understands these people and really knows a lot about how these people think and how they live. Because Troy and I, I mean, we'll admit we are not historians. We're not theologians. Uh, we're people that love church history and we love seeing how God has worked uh, throughout history. Um, but I I always want to ask, if, if you could ask Martin Luther uh, one question now, what would it be? Oh, that's a oh man! You got me on that one. One <laughs> I should think about that because th- there'll be a chance for that. Although it won't be yeah. limited to one question in in the resurrection. Sure. Um, I, I you know I th- this is kind of a nerdy question, but I think uh-huh. I would ask him about the interpretation of the Old Testament because um, mm. there, this hmm. is a big question as he's as he's going back to the Hebrew really for the first time in a couple of centuries, as he's looking at the Old Testament and bringing it into the New Testament. Uh, as he's understanding Christ and not only just Jesus himself, but also the forgiveness of sins and the doctrine of justification as the center of the Old Testament, I'd love to just have him unfold that for mm-hmm. me a little bit. Maybe it's on my mind because I'm reading right now Luther's On the Last Words of David, which is basically mm-hmm. his unfolding of how to read the Old Testament. So I'm really kind of thinking about that, and I've got a couple points that I'd love to be that I'd love to be kind of clarified and hashed out. I think that <laughs> that'd be where I'd want to start the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, that's really funny. Although it's interesting because when we get to heaven, I guess Jesus will be there to clarify all of our uh, all of our theological questions. But it's like well, you know, get, how, you know? Yeah, how about this though? Because Jesus, even though he in his life he was perfect, and yet he still learned. And I think that one of the joys of the resurrection will be will be continuing to learn more and mm. more about mm. who God is. That, that there's yeah. an unfathomable depth that's there, and that we'll be able to plummet that depth. And make art and poetry extolling the glory of God, even in the resurrection. I think that'll be part of the wonder of it all. You know, I actually hope that's true, because some of the best conversations you'll ever have are just a couple people getting together and hashing out a thought about God and what would these people say. And I do kind of hope that we'll still be able to have those like cafeteria table style question sessions. And then Jesus can come over and give us the right answer afterwards, maybe, or, you know, drop a classic line <laughs> like he does in the Bible where he leaves you a question. And you're like, oh, now I'm not sure where we go. Um, so uh, one more, I think one more question for me, if you don't mind. Um, sure. We... Uh, we we talk about pastors a lot. We talk about a lot of important people on our show, and I think um, church history is kind of maybe sometimes forgotten or look, looked over a little bit in today's church. We kind of think about what's going on right now a whole lot, but we kind of forget the past and where we came from, I think. If there's something that you think uh, pastors could learn from Martin Luther, if there's something that pastors could take away today, like, hey, here's, and this could be, I almost think it'd be something as simple as like maybe a way he prayed or a time he spent with God or a certain, like a, almost a practical application people could today take away. And like, this is something Martin Luther did that you might might want to look into. Um, if, that, if that question makes sense. There was this quote in my mind that made me think of it where uh, Martin Luther, and I, I think this is him, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I saw it online one time where he goes, basically, I have so many things to get done today, I better wake up like three hours early and spend time in prayer so I have enough time to get it all done. I don't know yeah. if that's an actual quote of his, but it's always stuck in my head, like, yeah, when you're busy is when you usually push God away, that's when you actually need to pull God in closest, so that's kind of there my question. Is a, Luther was a profound, he had a profound sense that his life was in God, his life was in Christ, hidden with Christ, and even though he sort of oversaw the destruction of the monasteries, which were devoted to time spent with God in prayer, he that was not lost in the Reformation. So there's some profound works from Luther on prayer. One of the great ones is he wrote a letter to his barber about how to pray, 
and how to pray the scriptures. So how do we grab a hold of the scriptures and turn them into a prayer? He talked about weaving a fourfold strand of, of instruction and repentance, thanksgiving and petition. It's really this beautiful, practical wisdom in Luther. I think the two, I mean, aside from, well, the, the two major insights that I think are almost of necessity for the church to recover today from, from Martin Luther is, number one, the understanding of the three estates that the Lord has ordered the world in three spheres or three governments, the church, the family, and the state. And each of them exists for distinct purposes. The, the church to preach eternal life, the family to bring forth temporal life, and the government to, well, to bring about temporal death to prevent everything from dying. But that those three estates exist according to God's command, and we live and have different callings and vocations in all three estates. I think that's essential for our age and for the church to recover, uh, especially as we wrestle through the church-state stuff. The second is, and this is what the sermon that you guys have is about, is this distinction between law and gospel. Luther's fundamental understanding that God's word comes to us with, really, with two words. The word of the law, which is his commandments, his requirements, what we are to do, and his gospel, which is the promise of the forgiveness of sins because of what Christ has done. And every theological error, in one way or another, is the confusion of law and gospel, the mixing of law and gospel, the not Mm. making that clear distinction of law and gospel. And all the trouble that we have as Christians that come to us as the devil tempts us and as we're afflicted in our own conscience and mind, it's that that's where the battleground is. It's the law trying to say what it's not supposed to say. It's the Mm -hmm. gospel trying to step over what it is supposed to do. And so that distinction between the promise and the threat, between the command and the gift, that is key for Luther, for the Reformation, and for the church to recover. Yeah, I we have a show called Revive Devos. We take Revive devotionals, and one of the people we do, we we visit every week is Martin Luther, and he has a devotional, and it, I, I, I'm not sure if it'll be out when this episode is out, but it's coming out in the next month or so, where he talks about the law, the gospel, love, and um, and and gosh, I can't remember the last one. There's death or sin, something like that. anyway. Suffering, those, probably. He, but yeah, he gives like the definitions of those things in a way that I had never heard them before, but it's so simplified my understanding. I'm not going to try to do it because I'm not Martin Luther, but I guess to our audience, find that episode of Revive Devos when it comes out because it's so simplified those concepts in a way that I just remember I got I got done editing that part and I was like, that makes so much more sense. Why has no one explained it to me that way? It just it's so much more perfect and succinct. And I so I completely agree with you. Like he was really good at explaining law and gospel in a way that just pulls it all together. And instead of kind of making the Bible seem like this big confusing thing, you just you get to the end of it you're like that just really works. Um, all right, Joel, do you want to hit us with this this last bit here? Yeah. Do you have any, any? You know, as we wrap up here and move into the sermon, do you have any moments or uh, stories that you think? you know, it would do good for people to kind of think about as we head out of this segment. There's so many Luther stories. I mean, he was a character, but you know, one of them, just to think about this sermon, Luther's preaching on Galatians 3, uh, if I remember correctly, on New Year's Eve. And so that that day, by the way, New Year's Eve, it's eight days after Christmas. And so mm-hmm. it's celebrated in the liturgical church as the naming of Jesus and the circumcision of Jesus. And so it's a church festival that celebrates those things. And so Luther was preaching. He wasn't the normal pastor of St. Mary's Church in Wittenberg. That belonged to a man named Bugenhagen, but he was 
out visiting. The elector had sent him around to visit some of the other churches. So Luther was teaching in the university. That was his main job. He was lecturing, he was writing, he was arguing with the world, and he was also preaching and taking care of the congregation. He was just working his tail off. And uh, history tells us that after he preached this sermon on New Year's Eve, he fainted. And they, he had to go, they kind of brought him back around, and they brought him home, and he stayed in bed exhausted for almost six weeks before he had got back up and went to his duty. So you can see Luther just, I mean, this is kind of how he was. He was an extreme personality, and so he's just, he's going to work until he can't go any further. He's going to preach until he can't preach anymore. And this sermon did it. He preached this sermon, and then, poof, falls over. Wild stuff. And this sermon, by the way, it becomes... One of the major—in in the mid-19th century, so 1840 or so, a bunch of Saxons came over from Germany to the United States, and that became the origin of my own church body, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And our first president, C.F.W. Walther, gave a bunch of lectures at the seminary on the proper distinction between law and gospel. It's a famous book amongst uh, Lutherans. And, and Walther basically uses this sermon— as his outline to distinguish between law and gospel and to teach all the pastors how to do it. So so this sermon that Luther preached became a famous sermon already and had kind of long durative effect in the in the life of the church. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism. We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis. But also, I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God says countries should be. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. Thank you so much, Brian, for coming on. Uh, We really appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure, guys. Thank you. Yeah, Brian, if you want to tell everyone the name of the book that uh, originally kind of got me onto you and saw you and let everyone know um, where they can find more from you and hear more from you, that would be fantastic. What was it? There's a couple. So I've got I've had the privilege <laughs> of writing a few books. Has American Christianity Failed was the first big one, and then A Martyr's Faith for a Faithless World was the next one. Most recent is And Take They Our Life, Martin Luther's Theology of Martyrdom. That was uh, the one. That yeah, was the one I saw. Yeah, that's a that's been a fun one. That's new. All that stuff is I've got a website that kind of collects all the different things at wolfmuller.co. So if you just Google Wolfmuller, that comes up. W O L F M U E L L E R dot C O and you'll see all the books and podcasts and YouTube and everything else hanging around there. All right. Thank you so much, Brian, for coming on. And I our, our audience will be excited to hear this sermon here that will be on for them in just a moment. The Distinction Between the Law and the Gospel, a sermon preached by Martin Luther on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1532. 
The text was Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, which reads this. Now, before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed, so that the law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Luther's Sermon. What St. Paul has in mind is this that throughout Christendom, preachers and hearers alike should teach and should maintain a clear distinction between the law and the gospel, between works and faith. He so instructed Timothy, admonishing him, 2 Timothy 2.15, to divide rightly the word of truth. Distinguishing between the law and the gospel is the highest art in Christendom, one that every person who values the name Christian ought to recognize, know, and possess. Where this is lacking, it is not possible to tell who is a Christian and who is a pagan or Jew. That much is at stake in this distinction. That is why St. Paul strongly insists that among Christians, these two doctrines, the law and the gospel, are to be well and truly separated from one another. Both of them are the word of God, the law or the Ten Commandments and the gospel. Both were given by God. The gospel originally in paradise, the law on Mount Sinai. That's why it's so important to distinguish the two words properly and not mingle them together. Otherwise, you will not be able to have or hold on to a correct understanding of either of them. Instead, just when you think you have them both, you will have neither. Under the papacy, the point was reached where neither the Pope himself nor any of his scholars, cardinals, bishops, or universities ever knew what either gospel or law might be. They never tasted, nor did they let it be known in any of their books how the one is to be distinguished from the other, how the doctrine of the law should or could be kept apart from the gospel. For that reason, their faith is, to say it the best, purely and simply a Turk's faith, which stands solely upon the bare letter of the law and on outward acts of doing or not doing, such as, you shall not kill and you shall not steal, They take the view that the law is satisfied if a man does not use his fist for homicide, does not steal anyone's property, and the like. In short, they believe that sort of external piety is a righteousness that prevails before God and so forth. But such doctrine and faith are false and wrong, even though the works performed are themselves good and have been commanded by God. For the law demands a righteousness much higher than one based on external virtues and piety, while the gospel of grace and the forgiveness of sins is totally knocked to the ground by their doctrine. For however much not stealing or not committing homicide is behavior that is right and mandated by the law, it is still nothing more than a piety of the Gentiles, which fails to attain the righteousness demanded by the law. Far less can it be equated with the forgiveness of sins that the gospel teaches and proclaims. It is therefore urgent that these two words, different in kind, be rightly and properly distinguished. Where that is not done, neither the law nor the gospel can be understood, and consciences must perish in blindness and error. For the law has its terminus, defining how far it is to go and what it is to achieve, namely, to terrify the impenitent with the wrath and displeasure of God and drive them to Christ. Likewise, the gospel has its unique office and function, to preach the forgiveness of sins to troubled consciences. Let doctrine then not be falsified, either by mingling these two into one, or by mistaking the one for the other. 
For the law and the gospel are indeed both God's word, but they are not the same kind of doctrine. It is like the word of God in Exodus 20, verse 12. You shall honor your father and your mother, and the one found in Ephesians 6, 4. You, fathers, bring up your children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Since the two words do not address the same office or the same persons, what chaos would follow if they were thrown together on the grounds that it is all God's word? The son would then want to be father, and the father would want to be the son. Mother would want to be daughter, and daughter to be the mother. But that lacks rhyme or reason and is intolerable. The father should do what God has assigned and commanded him to do. Likewise, let the son attend to his calling. In this way, duties and functions are properly distinguished and distributed. So, too, it is fitting for the mother in a family to bear children and nurse them and bring them up, and for a husband to provide for his household and servants and manage them faithfully, but not to bear children or take over the housekeeping, attending, and so forth. When someone begins to interfere in the office assigned to the other, or tries to take it over and annex it to his own office, what kind of chaos and turmoil does that not soon produce? The word must be rightly distinguished, so that each person looks after what he has been called and assigned to do, stays with it, and goes no farther. This way he will not go astray. It was nothing else than this that brought Thomas Munzer into such terrible trouble. He read in the books of the kings how David slew the wicked with the sword, how Joshua destroyed the Canaanites, Hittites, and other godless people who were dwelling in the land of Cana, etc., Finding that word in the scriptures, he drew from it the conclusion that we must all do the same. We must crush kings and ruling princes because we have this example. But where Munzer fell short was in failing to distinguish the word correctly. Otherwise, he would have said to himself, Yes, David fought wars, but am I David? The word that told David to fight wars is not addressed to me. He received the command to make war and slay kings. I have received the command to preach. Munzer should have left fighting alone and gone into the pulpit and taught the pure gospel as Christ commanded, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation, Mark 16, 15. Had he done that, he would not have gotten into such terrible doctrine and uproar. To David, and not to Munzer, it was said, you shall protect the righteous, smite the wicked with the sword, maintain peace, etc. But if David would neglect those duties and go intruding into the priestly office, And if I would drop preaching and take up the sword and so mix everything up, what kind of prize, government, and high art would would we then have? For the barnyard, perhaps. Therefore, I say it again. Properly separating the law and the gospel from one another is a very high art, since it is necessary to do the same also with the commandments, all of which are included under the one word, law. We have to distinguish the one from the other unless we want everything to be completely and totally mixed up, and because there is still failure and deficit even when every right and proper distinction has been made. Hence it is a serious misunderstanding, and indeed foolishness, when somebody pleads, it is the word of God, it is the word of God, therefore it is right, and so forth. The word of God is not all of the same kind. It is of diverse kinds. The law is a different word from the gospel. Likewise, the laws or commandments are not all of the same kind. The word of God, protect the righteous, punish the wicked, does not apply to me. Nor does the word bear children, nurse them, sweep, attend, and so forth, which applies alone to the women. Likewise, 
Thou shalt preach, thou shalt administer the sacraments, belongs not to female but to male persons who have been called into that office. Our enthusiasts know nothing at all of this distinction, neither how to make it, nor what the distinction is in theory or in practice. One law is held up in opposition to another on the grounds that the one is just, uh, just as much law as the other. When dealing with laws, however, it is necessary to separate them one from another and to pay proper attention to the persons at whom the law is directed. How much more important is it then to make a distinction between the law and the gospel? Therefore, whoever knows well this art of dividing the law from the gospel should be given a place at the front of the room and be called a doctor of Holy Scripture, for it is impossible to make this distinction without the Holy Spirit. I experience in myself, and I see every day in others, how hard it is to separate the doctrines of the law and the gospel from one another. In this, the Holy Spirit has to be the master and teacher, or no person on earth would be able to understand or teach the distinction. Hence, no papist, no false Christian, no enthusiast is able to divide law and gospel from one another, especially when it comes to defining what each of them is. We should understand law to mean nothing else than God's word and command, in which he directs us what to do and what not to do, and demands from us our obedience or work. This is easy to understand as a statement of what gives the law its character, but very difficult in terms of its purpose and its limits. The individual laws or commandments, dealing with the works that God requires of all people severally on the basis of what they are, their social position, their office, age, and other circumstances, are of many kinds. They tell every human being what God has laid upon him and requires of him in keeping with his nature and assigned office. The women shall attend to the children, permit the head of the household to take the lead, and so forth. That is her commandment. A servant is to be obedient to his master and do whatever else belongs to the office of a servant. Likewise, a maid has her directive. The overall law, however, which applies to us all as human beings, is this, Matthew 22, verse 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Counsel and help him in his need, whatever it may be. If he hungers, feed him. If he is naked, clothe him. And whatever else of that sort there is. That means giving the law its rightful boundaries and marking it off from the gospel. The law, in name and in fact, is that which presses us to do our works. On the other hand, the gospel, or the faith, is a doctrine or word of God that does not require our works. It does not command us to do anything. On the contrary, it bids us merely to accept the offered grace of forgiveness of sins and eternal life and let it be given to us. It means that we do nothing, only receive and allow ourselves to be given what has been granted to us and handed to us in the word that God promises and allows his servants to tell us, I am giving you this and this and so forth. For example, in baptism, which is not my doing or my work, but God's word and work, God speaks to me and says, Stop right here. I baptize you. I wash you from all your sins. Accept it. It is for you. Now, if you let yourself be baptized, what more are you doing than receiving and accepting God's free gift? So this now is the difference between the law and the gospel. The law presses us to do what we are supposed to do. It demands that we do our duty toward God and our neighbor. In the gospel, on the other hand, we are summoned to a gift of alms, 
to a rich distribution of charity, where we are to receive and accept God's favor and eternal salvation. Here this difference is easy is easily to be noted. The gospel bids us come to God's gift and present to help to his help and his salvation. We just hold out the beggar's bag and let it be given to us. The law, on the other hand, gives us nothing. It only demands and takes from us. So now there is this pair, giving and taking, widely separate from one another. When something is given to me as a gift, I do nothing towards it. I accept it and receive it and let it be given to me. Conversely, when I carry out my calling, what I have been commanded to do, for example, counsel and help my neighbor, I am not receiving anything, but I am giving something to another whom I serve. In this way, the law and the gospel are distinguished in their essential character. The one promises, the other commands. The gospel gives, and that means that we receive. The law issues demands and says, Thou shalt. It is like when a prince or a liege lord presents his property to a nobleman. The nobleman does nothing. It is not his work. It is a bequest by the prince. But when he mounts his horse to serve his lord or to attend to him at court, he is doing something. Hence, this pair of doctrines are to be widely divided from one another. But in spirit, for the devil to torment hearts does not let us remain with what the law's words say or with its goal. He, he does allow it to happen that something is done or performed, but he leads us away from what we were commanded to do to something else allegedly higher and better. He does the same sort of thing in regard to the law's purpose, constantly pointing away from the right goal to a false one, for which the law purportedly was given. In calling for this or that to be done, for example, you shall not steal, you shall not kill, etc., the law is speaking of a kind of doing that by its nature and definition proceeds from the heart and the spirit. Now, if now the work that is done is not of that kind, the outcome is either hypocrites, who understand the law to mean external behavior, and if they have such behavior or work, count themselves as blameless and righteous, or people who totally despair. The gospel, for its part, offers comfort, saying, Look, Christ is your treasure, your gift, your Savior, your help and comfort. When the heart now comes to this fork in the road between the law and the gospel, and sees grace here and guilt there, promise here and command there, giving here and demanding there, it refuses to go ahead. It balks. It can neither fight off the law nor take hold of grace. The reason is it does not know how to divide these two words, the law and the gospel, from one another. Where the conscience has now taken a hit so that it well and truly feels sin, is held fast in the grips of death, is burdened down by war, plague, poverty, disgrace, and similar disasters, and when in that case the law announces you belong to death, you are damned, I demand this and this from you, which you have not done and cannot do. Where the law, I say, lays in with its blows and terrorizes a person with the fear of death and hell and despair, then it is high time to know how to divide the law and the gospel from one another, and to show each to its proper place. Here let him divide who can. This is the critical time for dividing. To this moment belongs what St. Paul says, before faith came, 
We were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed, and so forth. Let a Christian know, he says, how to make a distinction between the law and the gospel, between works and faith, especially in regard to their goals and the messages they bear. Let him counter the law in this way. Yes, you demand much, and you consign to damnation those who are not able to give what you require, but are you also aware how far your regime is supposed to go? Have you forgotten that its time has a set limit? As St. Paul says, when faith comes, the law should cease, make no further demands, terrorize and condemn no longer. Whoever does not know this or pays no attention to it loses the gospel and never comes to faith. That is what the devil is doing through the enthusiasts. He mixes together law and promise, faith and works, tortures poor consciences, and allows them to view neither the law nor the gospel with with proper distinction. He drives and hunts people into the law and lays a net for them that bears the name, I must do this, I must not do that. If at this point I fail to distinguish well Moses and Christ, I cannot be free, I cannot escape, I must end in despair. But if I knew how to divide the law and the gospel rightly, there would be no need for despair. I could say, has God given us only one kind of word, namely the law? Has he not also commanded the gospel of grace and forgiveness of sins to be preached? Yes. If the conscience raises its voice where there is no faith in the promise, the law quickly presses its claim. You are commanded to do this and this. You have not done it. Therefore, you must pay the penalty. In that kind of struggle and death agony, it is high and it is high and urgent time for faith to play the part of a man to stand up without flinching, confront the law, and address it with calm courage. My friend law, are you the only word of God? Is not the gospel too the word of God? Has the promise come to an end? Has God's mercy stopped? Or have the two, law and gospel, merit and grace, now been concocted into a stew and become one thing? We will not have a God who can no longer give the law, be assured of that. So, too, we do not want the law to be unmingled with the gospel. Allow us, then, to have this distinction without latter hindrance, that you press for duty and justice, while the gospel points us to pure grace and gift. If the law, then, accuses me of failing to do this or that, of being a lawbreaker and a sinner in God's record book of guilt, I have to confess that it is all true. But what it says after that, therefore you are condemned, that I must not concede, but resist it with firm faith and say, according to the law which reckons up my guilt, I am indeed a poor condemned sinner. But I appeal from the law to the gospel, because God has given another word that is higher than the law, That word is the gospel, which gives us, as a free gift, God's grace, the forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and life. It gives you pardon and absolution from your terrors and damnation. It assures me that all guilt has been paid for by the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. That is why it is so necessary that we know how to handle and steer both words properly and watch carefully that they do not become mixed up with one another. For God has given us these two different words, the law and the gospel, the one as well as the other. Each of the two bears his command. The law is to demand perfect righteousness from everyone. The gospel 
is to give the righteousness demanded by the law to those who do not have it, that is, to all people, by grace as a gift. Whoever then has failed to satisfy the law and is in captivity in sin and death, let him turn from the law to the gospel. Let him believe the preaching of Christ, that he is truly the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he has reconciled his heavenly Father, that as a totally free gift and by grace he grants eternal righteousness, life, and salvation to all who believe it. Let him hold fast to this preaching alone. Let him call upon Christ, beg for grace and the forgiveness of sins, and firmly believe, for this great gift will be grasped alone by faith. Let him do that, and as he believes, so he will have. This, then, is the correct distinction, and everything depends on getting it right. To preach about it or to divide with words is easy, but to put it to use and into practice is a high art and hard to achieve. The papists and the enthusiasts know nothing about it. I see in myself and others who know perfectly how to talk about it how hard this distinction is. It is a common art. Very quickly one learns to say that the law is a different word and doctrine than the gospel. But does it, to distinguish in practice, to transpose the art into work, is toil and pain. St. Jerome wrote a great deal about it, but like a blind man writing about color. They define the law as having to be circumcised, to offer sacrifices, not to eat this and that, and so forth. From there they go on to make a new law out of the gospel, which purportedly teaches how a person should pray and fast, how you should become a monk or a nun, go to church, and so forth. They call that distinguishing. Yes, but more accurately, call it throwing things together into the tub. They do not know themselves what they are washing. So listen to St. Paul, who teaches you that you have come up you have to come up higher than the question of being circumcised or not, and so forth, which is all part of being guarded and locked up under the law. You must come to faith in Christ, through whom we become children of God and are saved forever. Otherwise, stay in prison under the wrath of God. True it is that the law, or the Ten Commandments, have not been annulled so that we are exempt from them and not allowed to have them, for Christ set us free from the curse not from the obedience of the law. No, that is not what God wants. He wants to keep the commandments with total commitment and diligence, but not to put our trust in it when we have done so, or despair if we have not. See to it, then, that you distinguish the two words rightly, not giving more to the law than its due, otherwise you lose the gospel. Likewise, you should not look at the gospel or build thoughts upon it as though the law had collapsed. Rather, let each of them remain in its own circle and sphere. Just as one must not preach that either the civil government or the pulpit should be abolished, but instead distinguish both kinds of purpose, persons and offices, and let each stick to its role and attend to it, the civil authority in accord with its territorial rights as far as they extend, the preacher in accordance with his teaching office. I do not push myself into the mayor's office, but I keep away from it as summer from winter, for my office is to preach, baptize, lead souls to heaven, give comfort to poor afflicted hearts, and so forth. It belongs to the civil authority, on the other hand, to keep peace, so that our young people are brought up in the fear and discipline of God. On the other hand, neither the prince nor the mayor can expect to attend to the preaching, study theology, or comfort the people with God's word. 
So what is important is correct distinction. Not like the Pope does, who is neither house dog nor hound, neither prince nor or bishop, yet wants to be both, and covers up his shame with both monks and po politicians' heads gear. His bishops do the same thing, though they too are neither bishops nor princes, but this is what you should do. When you find yourself under attack, with the law threatening to damn you, know that God has not given only the law, but also a far higher word, the blessed gospel of Christ. If the two of them, the law and the gospel, now come into confrontation, and the law finds me a sinner and accuses and condemns me, while the gospel says, Matthew 9, verse 2, Be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven, you shall be saved. Which one should I follow? Both are God's word. St. Paul teaches you the answer. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. So this is where the law stops. For it shall and must be that the lesser word yields and gives way to the gospel. Both are the word of God, the law and the gospel, but they are not both alike. One is lower, the other higher. One is weaker, the other stronger. One is less, the other greater. If they now wrestle with one another, I follow the gospel and say goodbye to the law. It is better not to, to know the law than to lose the gospel. It is like what you have to do under the law when God commands, Exodus 20, verse 7, you shall not misuse my name, and so forth. But your prince or your parents command you to disavow God or his gospel. God says, honor my name, and the law says, you shall love God more than your neighbor. Here I should let the lesser command, the obedience to men, go by the board and keep the higher commandment of the first table, which ought to be the master of all the others, and obey it alone. Far more, then, must I hold to the same principle when the law tries to press me to desert Christ and his gift and his gospel. In that situation, I let the law go and I say, Dear law, if I have failed to do your works, you do them. I'm not going to allow myself to be tortured to death on your account and be taken captive and held under you and thereby forget the gospel. Whether I have sinned, done wrong, or or not done wrong, I leave that for you, law, to worry about. Be gone with you and leave my heart in peace. In this matter, I do not know you. If you want to demand and have it that I live a godly life here on earth, I will gladly do so. But if you want to climb up and break in on me so that I lose what has been given me, then I would much rather not know you at all than lose the gift. Paul is teaching us this distinction when he states that the law performed the service of keeping us under restraint, etc. It is needed, too, to restrain and to coerce children and rude people. They need its words. You shall honor your father and your mother. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal or kill, etc. For the old Adam has to be bound and held captive under the law, which restrains us, drives us, and makes demands on us in order to keep us from a self-willed, wanton life. But that kind of compulsion and restraint should last only until the gospel has appeared, and it is made known that we are to believe in Christ. At that point I say, On your way, law, I am no longer willing to be held captive by you in my heart, so that I place my trust in having done this or that, or despair, though not having done it. Faith is here giving me a sermon from heaven, the gospel that the law no longer can or ought to torment contrite and broken hearts. It has tortured and locked up enough of them already. Therefore, make room now for the gospel, which offers and gives us God's grace and mercy.
That now is the picture that St. Paul sees in Christendom, and it accords well with the two words in their nature that we distinguish them and that we also soon distinguish their fruits, that is, what each of them produces or accomplishes. Their fruits are of two kinds, taking and giving, terrifying and giving joy. The law makes demands of us and terrifies us. The gospel gives to us and consoles us. But then to go on from there and make use of this distinction, to put it to work, when the two words, law and gospel, are battling head-to-head in your conscience, that you are then and there able to separate them rightly and to say, I'm going to have these two words unmingled, with each one shown to its own place, with its own strengths, the law for the old Adam, the gospel for my timid and terrified conscience. For I do not need anyone to drive me to do good works, much less can I bear the law's accusation, being already not only harshly accused but convicted by my own conscience. Rather, I need comfort and help from the gospel of Jesus Christ. To do this now is very hard, especially with the law wanting to get my conscience into its shackles. See to it, then, that you take hold of the promise, and do not let the law get the upper hand or rule in your conscience, and so bring you into judgment for that would be a denial of the gospel. Instead, you must swing yourself right around and take hold of the grace word, the gospel of the forgiveness of sins, that God has also commanded the gospel to be preached to the poor, in which his will is not to play a game with you on the grounds of justice, but to deal with you by his grace, as a kindly father does toward his children when they are in need, that he wills to forgive you by grace for everything that you have failed to do and to give you as a gift what you are unable to do. Thus the law should apply its strengths toward external discipline alone and leave undisturbed the little room where the gospel wills to dwell. As St. Paul says, Before faith came, we were confined under the law. Therefore, another word must come, in addition to the law and over it, namely the gospel, which sets us into a godliness not our own, one that is outside of us in Christ alone. For it is impossible for us to become righteous through the law, because even in the past the law attempted far more than than it accomplished. Hence it is also undeniable that no human being can become godly and righteous through the work of the law, For if that were possible, it would long since have happened. Therefore, another, higher word belongs here, which is the gospel and faith in Christ, as is heard. God give us grace and strengthen our faith. Amen. It is a serious misunderstanding and indeed foolishness when somebody pleads, it is the word of God, it is the word of God, so it is right, etc. But the word of God is not all the same kind. It is made up of various, of a variety of kinds. The law is a different word from the gospel. Whew! I had never thought of that. I guess to me, it always just made sense that, well, the Bible, you know, I grew up with the tradition, the Bible says it, and so that's the way it is, but then you always get these different arguments, well, the Bible says this, and the Bible says that, and you kind of just walk away and go, well, you know, the Bible does say this and that, but the idea that there are different, the Bible in different places is saying almost different things, and that these different words of God, it's interesting. I'm not going to tell you, you need to walk away and believe this. I'm not telling you that. This is necessarily what I 100% agree with. 
But the idea of it is something I think as Christians we do need to keep in mind, and I think it could help our theology, help us to be better at protecting and defending and understanding our faith if we look at this gigantic you know, book written by God and understand that it's, it, it all points towards the gospel, it all points towards Jesus Christ, but he's using it in different ways, and we should approach it with different ways of understanding it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Brian Wolfmuller. Check out his website, wolfmuller.co. You can find out more about all the books he's written and all the other. He has a few podcasts as well. Head on over there and check it out. Every episode, we ask the audience, if you can do something for us, that would be fantastic. This episode, we get to help one of you out and give you something. We said if you stay to the end, we tell you how you could get Brian Wolfmuller's book, and they take our life, Martin Luther's Theology of the Martyrdom. And you will be able to get a signed copy from him. All we ask that you do is that you share this episode on social media somewhere, and you tag us in that share. It can be Instagram, it can be Twitter, it can be Facebook or, or another source as long as we can see and tell that you've done it. Right. We, we can put you in the raffle and then um, after a few days, we'll kind of take a measure of where everyone is. And so by the next episode of Revive Thoughts, we will have announced a winner on our social media pages and then you will get the opportunity to uh, get this book written and uh, written by Brian Wolf Mueller. Yeah, signed sign copy. This is Troy and Joel and this is Revive Thoughts. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.